Welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers, giving you the motivation and inspiration you need to make the most of your later years. Whether you're still in the planning stages or you're several years in, we'll share stories from boomers who refuse to act their age and continue to live a life inspired. Let them show you how being old can be new if you know what to do with your host, Terry Lorbeer. Hello and welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers. My guest today is Dr. Robert Yoho. Robert had a very successful cosmetic surgery practice in California for many years. Now retired, Robert has become an author with his first book, Butchered by Healthcare, becoming an award-winning book with accolades and reviews by doctors and others in the healthcare industry. Welcome, Dr. Yoho. How are you today? Okay. Thank you, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, as you've noted, I've quit the foreign legion and you no longer have to doctor me. So just call me Robert. Okay, and Robert. Let, that's great. Let me do the uh, standard disclaimer, which we have to do because all the lawyers. Yes, please. This is not healthcare information. This is not to be taken as individual healthcare information. If you have a problem, you have you need a licensed provider to uh, assist you. It's to be used at your own risk, and that's about that's about as blanket a disclaimer as you can make. But I believe every word I'm going to tell you, and it's informed by decades of my experience and my research of over four years. Oh, that's great. That's great. So, tell us what happened that led you to leave your successful practice and write this book. Well. Terry, I prescribed hormone therapy for years and years and years. Most of my patients were women over 50. So they were being tormented by menopausal symptoms. And I eventually was trained in how to prescribe these hormones and saw fantastic results. Most plastic surgeons operate on a string of patients who are depressed and have other problems and they give they they never treat them you know, they have hormone symptoms and the women over 50 frequently have cosmetic surgery. So I learned how to do it and I saw just wonderful results. But as I got into the learning about this, I saw all these contradictions and I saw that the FDA had put these terrific warnings on progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. And I started to read about this. And as I became better trained, I learned that there were a pack of lies floating around about bioidentical hormones. And the, the hormones are the, the bioidentical ones are the same as the, what constitutes the human body. They're not uh, toxic chemicals that are made up by big pharma. They are not uh, horse urine estrogen or uh, a synthetic progesterone compound related to progesterone. So they basically have fewer problems. And I learned that we've been prescribing these hormones for a hundred years for thyroid. It's 120 years for estrogen or for estrogen and testosterone. It's nearly a hundred years. So we have this clinical experience with these things. It's massive. It's overwhelming. And they really help aging. They help symptoms and they, they help your health possibly improve longevity. So I, I learned all that. And then I gradually step-by-step step, uh, learned about healthcare corruption. And I found out, I originally thought I'd find a can of worms but as I dug deeper, I found that I uncovered a dumpster full of worms and each field became, it looked worse and worse and worse. And, and I, I examined everything from the insurance industry 
to the hospital industry, to several specialty fields. Notably, some of the worst are the psychiatry and oncology. And you mentioned uh, cardiac surgery and uh, angioplasty earlier, and we can go into any of that. And at the end of the book, I give ways for you to uh, think about the problems. And if you can give me another moment to do a little preamble about healthcare corruption, we think about the FDA as a regulatory body, but it actually, well over half of its revenues come directly from pharmaceutical companies. And this means that it's essentially a house pet of pharmas and they, they're not to be relied upon. And what they say is not science. It's essentially marketing for big pharma. They cooperate with the pharmaceutical companies to essentially ruin their studies through all kinds of tricks. They use statistical methods to distort things. They hide whole studies. They use contract research groups, which are hired in foreign countries who have to perform the way they want them to perform, or they never, and they um, create controversy. They've sort of taken over our medical internet because they have ghostwriters even altering Wikipedia about their drugs. And if you Google any disease, you'll find a link farm of hundreds of articles that are mostly pharmaceutical company advertising that describe in in great detail what they want you to understand. So together with a cooperative FDA, big pharma and uh, medical establishment, they made a mess out of medicine. Uh, And basically the whole thing is a money farm now. And the doctors, although many are very idealistic and try their best and medicine is is an inspiring uh, field to uh, go into. But when the practical aspects of it is their behavior is largely controlled by economic incentives. And if you work for a large group, they even have, they even examine what you do statistically and make sure that you're on track to prescribe certain medications like statin drugs to decrease cholesterol, which are notoriously ineffective and are a multi-billion dollar industry, perhaps many hundreds of billions of dollars spent over the last 20 years on these things. Their usage is uh, really only appropriate for a few things. So that's kind of the outline. And uh, we can go wherever direction, whatever direction you'd like here from here. Well, let's start with oncology because that has grown so massively over the years. And yet we're not really getting better. We're not having that many more people survive cancer, I don't think, than we have in the past. And yet it is a massive, massive industry. Yeah, that the numbers bear you out. And first thing is, I want to make another disclaimer. And that is that I believe in Western medicine. And I don't think because we have problems with aircraft design that magic carpets fly, right? So these doctors are doing their best. They're in a very difficult field where people are are sometimes dying and are very, very sick. They're complicated problems. So I don't want to say it's not challenging, but they have a terrific conflict of interests that is, I mean, it's overwhelming. And the problem is that well over half of their income in America comes from retailing chemotherapy drugs. So these drugs cost on average of $100,000 a year each, and they get 20%. So, I mean, it's a, it's a monster amount of uh, money. And their, the goal of many of these guys in private practice is to set up their chemo room with 20 lounger chairs, Barca loungers. And in there, done that. Yep. <laughs> set, up, set up this stuff. And it just literally mints money for them. Now it's worse. They're incentivized to prescribe these medications by the milligram. And I've heard stories of 
these pharmaceutical reps calling up the doctors and saying, you're at 2,300 milligrams for XYZ drug. If you just get up to 2,500 milligrams this month, you'll get the bonus, the 10% bonus. I mean, oh it's, it's horrible. Yeah. I mean, if that sort of behavior were done between you and I, we were both doctors and I gave you a product or a device and told you that I would kick you back 25% or 20% for prescribing it, that would be a federal crime called capping and it's a felony. So you could, we could both go to jail, but in practice, and for some reason, the pharmaceutical companies get a pass on this stuff and they're, they're allowed to do it. And I think we we're all under the impression that that doesn't happen anymore as the public, as a patient, we all thought, cause I know I thought that they weren't allowed to do that anymore, but you're saying they can well in as, oncology because that's a little different. As the legislature cut off avenues for direct kickbacks to doctors, the pharmaceutical companies have focused more and more on the key opinion leaders. That's what they call them. They have an acronym called KOLs, right? Can you imagine the drug reps talking about this? And they're allowed to give them research grants. They influence the prescribing standards. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmarish scene. And the worst part of it is what you mentioned yourself, that the chemotherapy is notoriously ineffective. The studies of it done recently show about an average of two months improved survival at the price of all those side effects, with the exception of five, five to seven uh, disease entities that, that work. Like I understand you had a lymphoma, leukemias sometimes are curable and several other, other things, including testicular cancer respond pretty well to their chemotherapy, but the rest of them, it just hardly works at all. And the, the references are in my book, Butchered by Healthcare, which has, if you get the ebook version, you can find over 500 links to the references. So I, nothing I say is original. It's all derivative of other whistleblowers. The only thing I did was I put it all together. And, you know, I have a friend that died years ago from breast cancer and the breast cancer didn't kill her. What killed her was all of the medications she was taking. It killed her liver. Her liver died and she died a terrible death because when your liver's dying, you blow up and you can't. Oh, it was horrible. It was just a horrible death. And it was bit from all the medication. Her liver just couldn't handle it anymore. Well, we can't judge an individual circumstance, right? And so maybe medicine is definitely an art. And if these oncologists practiced it as an art, we might have better success ratio instead of just indiscriminately applying the most expensive thing to anyone who came along. So again, I don't want to underestimate how difficult it is to be a cancer doctor or the choices they face, but as it's practiced currently, it's a mess. And it's, I think corruption is the word that you have to apply to anything that gives an incentive for prescribing a medication. That's a horrible thing. And a conflict of interest in government or industry is you know, sometimes jail times are imposed in government there. You're not, there's ethical rules that are very clearly laid out in medicine. What we do is just do a disclaimer and that supposedly sanitizes things. But in fact, it washes nothing clean and the conflict of interest is still there. And that's the kindest way to put something that really should be called kickbacks or bribery, but those are legal terms. So we won't use them here except for to reference them. 
So it's a, it's a real mess. And w- without getting into any detail, what's going on now is the same behavior on uh, Big Pharma's part writ large on a larger stage than they've ever been on before. So anyway. Yeah, that's just terrible. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, I had a friend who was scheduled for open heart surgery, and then him and his wife did some research and they found out that maybe all he needs is a stent, not open heart surgery. One versus the other, you're talking about a lot more weeks of recuperation, maybe bigger risk of death with the open heart surgery than the stent. So they did, the doctor at the last minute agreed to do the stent, but he kind of looked at them like, you know, they he didn't expect them to do the research to find out that maybe they don't need open heart surgery. And I think you were saying they might not have needed the stent either, but he was in the hospital already, so it was going to be one or the other. Uh, this is a a medical art form. Again, the the, the practice is an art, uh, but these things are used indiscriminately. And the surgery, the, I can go over the numbers for you if you'd like. Uh, it's it's not that complicated. If you if your listeners just bear with me for a second, the surgery only works has only been proven to work or extend lifespan, which is the ultimate you know the test of whether it works for one little segment of artery called the left main artery from which another couple of arteries spring, right? The rest of it, they do a lot of coronary artery bypass grafting. They do a lot of stenting on the other arteries, but this is a central artery and it only works for them and for these patients. And the extent of survival improval is 20% at five years. And that is the whole thing in that one case, and they build an industry out of doing plumbing around all kinds of lesions and spending an enormous amounts of money, and they they get away with it, even though it's the science is there and it's not supported. Now, a lot of internists understand this, and they also understand that stents are barely effective. And let me, the stent is a little, a way to stick a little opener around the area that has cholesterol deposits and blockage, right? It all makes perfect sense in a plumbing fashion. But what we care about is not how the plumbing looks, but what we care about is survival. So the only case where stents work and have been proven to work is when patients are having a horrible heart attack called an ST elevation heart attack or STEMI heart attack, which is an obvious on the EKG. It means that they're, they're sick, their heart muscle is, is being severely damaged or parts of it are dying. So this represents probably 1% of all the heart attacks. And in this instance, supposedly it works. Now I'll get into that in a second later, but instead the stenters are putting stents in all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. And they put them in areas that are not in that little tiny segment, two centimeter segment of artery from which branches the other two major arteries. And so that doesn't work and they know it. And a lot of internists understand it, but their cardiologists are out of control. And so it gets worse. I mean, all these stories gets, get worse. Okay. So when it's done on people who have a ST elevation heart attack, right? Was severe heart attack. It actually it kills more people than when it's done on people who are having another mild heart attack or are not having a heart attack, which is often done. They do these stents prophylactically. And so it kills 2.5% of the people instead of almost 
know people if they do stents on people who are asymptomatic, right? So it is safer than the coronary artery bypass grafting, which kills five to 10% of the people who undergo it, maybe, well, two to 10%, depending on the study. So unfortunately, the number needed to treat is one in 40 to produce one excess survival. So if you, if you do the math in your head, one in 40 is (laughs) 2.5%. So it's a wash. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's a wash. Now, I'm sophisticated. I'm not a cardiologist and I, maybe I don't understand the numbers, but I looked at it over and over. And if it does work, it doesn't work very well. But again, all this is artwork. And I mean, I recently had a relatively young friend uh, drop dead of a heart attack and I, he refused any treatment, which might not have saved him, but you think it would have done something to get a coronary artery. I mean, maybe it'd given him another few years or something, but these things are done for the money and the money is uh, huge. And there are pressures from the hospitals who also make an enormous amount of money. And the insurance companies hardly ride herd on them at all because their incentive is pro- is if they get the cut of 25% right off the top. And if anything, their incentive is to increase the entire healthcare spending. So we don't manage our entire system with insurance companies in any other country that I know of. In this country, Medicare is administrated by insurance companies as well as you know, all the private. So it's by far the vast majority of the money distributed gets uh, 25% off the top cut out of there with insurance companies and they're, they create perverse incentives and don't do a good job. That sounds really scary. It's scary. (laughs) It really is. So how can we be our own advocate to try and not have some of this happen to us? What's the best way? Okay. That's, that's the, we're jumping to the end of the um, story okay, and that's fine. Yep. No, no, that's fine. Let's <laughs> okay. go there right now. Okay. Um, good. So the key thing is to become your own advocate and learn as much as you can. And there are a couple ways that we have that we didn't have 10 years ago. And one is the patient advocacy groups. Now these things are largely funded by big pharma, but there are people who know everything about any, a given disease in a, a patient advocacy group. Sometimes they know more than the doctors, I think. And you, they will spend the time with you because many times they've been there or their, their family's been there and they can give you advice at every stage of the way. And they're, some of them are retired and are working on these things full time. Just remember that there are conflict of interest because the these things are largely funded by a, a drug company selling one drug for a cancer or some other condition. But the patients, the people there are often uh, very knowledgeable and sincere, and you can access them for free on the internet for any given condition. The second thing, which is great, is uh, Trump had an executive order uh, last year, I think, that said that patients can go and get a virtual consultation with any doctor they wanted without fear of the doctor getting censured. So prior to that, um, the doctor, the concern by the doctor was that the medical boards would say they hadn't done a good faith physical exam on the patient and seen them in person. But now we can go off uh, through cyberspace and get, now I'm not recommending that you be disrespectful of any of your doctors. Try to maintain a healthy relationships and, and good respect because these guys, even if they are on the wrong track, they've had enormous training and they've had experience with your problem. But if you aren't feeling better, if you're not getting well, which is after all the best index of how you're doing 
and what is going to happen to you, it may be time to get another consultation, a second opinion. And you can, you can travel for a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. You can travel virtually to the top medical centers in the, in the country. And I can tell you some of the people at these places, they're, you know, most doctors are, are smart cookies and they, they have a lot of training, but these people in general also have personality skills and they may be at the top of the heap intellectually too. And they know the latest. So you can, um, you know, there's a million doctors in America and you can go get it. You can go get another consultation if you want to, but always be respectful of these people and grateful for their time and take what you can without ever, uh, evidencing any, uh, you know, you never argue with them or anything like that because their experience is a lot bigger than yours. Right. Like, especially my oncology doctor, I have another appointment with her in the month of October. And I think at that point I'll be released because it would have, would have been five years. I'm okay. So I understand she's in a bad position, but when they asked for that second biopsy to be done, if she was really thinking about me, she would have said, let's wait and watch it because the lymph node was not that enlarged. And she already knew that it could be enlarged because of my right hip replacement. So why go do a biopsy too early? It's better, but especially with lymphoma, like you said, it's very curable. I And I'm not the type of patient who rushes into things. If I had thought about it, I might've said, let's wait. But I really, I, my other biopsy was real easy. I thought no big deal. This biopsy, because it the uh, lymph node was so small, they somehow did something. And now I have lymphedema in my right leg. So something got nicked or something happened. And now I'm going to be living. It's a year already. And I still have it. My right leg is like 8% bigger than my left leg. And my right foot isn't is swollen. So I have trouble finding shoes to fit. You know, I'm dealing with this, I'm doing a lot of stuff and nothing's really helping. So that could have all been avoided if she would have just said, why don't we just wait? Cause we've got time let's wait. And if it gets bigger, then we'll do the biopsy, but they jumped right away because I was already a cancer patient. Terry has, uh, he is, he has massive lymph, lymphedema in that leg. And that doesn't even sound as bad as a lot of them I've seen. And so what happened was the surgeon, uh, mucked around in there find, trying to find the lymph lymph gland, which usually doesn't cause problems, but they destroyed enough, uh, of the little passages. So she has fluid backed up in that leg and it's tremendously inconvenient. She's trying to wear these horrible tight Ugh, head stock compression so, stockings. Oh, they're horrible. So <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure that that was, uh, I mean, that sounds like a technical error on the part of the surgeon, which can happen. But I think the reason I think it happened was they did two surgeries because the lymph node was so tiny. They brought me in and they had one surgeon put a wire through the lymph node so the surgeon could find it. So it was difficult to find. Why not wait till it's big enough and it's right there? Because the other one was seven centimeters when they first diagnosed me. It was big. They took that out and that's how they diagnosed me. This was not that big. And that's what created the problems. I think they had to look for it. We can't cast stones back in time very yeah, easily. Yeah. In other words, it's a retrospective analysis, which you can look at anything and find flaws. And that's, a, that's a, actually attorneys kind of thinking is they, they know the outcome already. And then they try to find conclusions that support it. It's not scientific thinking, which is supposedly putting together uh, evidence and then drawing a conclusion. But it is true that medicine seems to have devolved into protocols that are meant to generate billing codes. And the surgeries are, 
the conflict of interest in medicine even involve fee for service. And that probably isn't the best system. I'm not sure what's better. But if you're a surgeon and you make your money from these huge surgeries, you have to be on the lookout for these things or you're not going to make any money. And sometimes it involves even selling a surgery if you're not as ethical. But it's hard to be ethical when your pocketbook is on the line. And it is. I yeah. always quote Cicero here, nothing is so strongly fortified that it cannot be taken with money. And that's what's happened to medical care. The money, we've showered money on this industry and very idealistically, frankly, until we're at 20% of our gross domestic product, it's double the costs of any other country per capita, right? It's bigger, it's double uh, Canada's or they're all at 10% of the GDP and Singapore gets by with five. And the worst thing about it is our therapies are 50% either ineffective or sometimes in many cases harmful. And that's not academically controversial. There are many, many, many papers about the problem. So we've got a, a, a crazy system that is not treating us very well and is set up to be aggressive, just as you've seen. So the solution is you're going to have to learn about it and manage it yourself. And if you have a smart friend like Terry to go to the doctor's appointments and do your research for you, if you're sick, you need somebody. If you've got a physician or a nurse partner, they can help too. But ultimately, it's, it's going to be on you to figure it out. And the sources are everywhere. And I think starting with Butchered by Healthcare, here's my little book ad, is a good place. And it, it, it summarizes many different specialty fields. So you can go and do your own research. And I think so that's so important. I think too many people just trust doctors. They know I'm going to let them make the decision. But I think we have to start doing our own research and think about what's right for us. And even as far as medications, like you talked a little while about statins back a, a few minutes ago, and doctors have wanted to put me on statins for years. And I go, no, I don't need it. I have no heart disease in my family. Like my immediate family has not died of heart disease. Sure, my cholesterol's elevated, but it's not super high. So I just don't take it. I just, but most people would, they would just say, oh, the doctor said I need it. I'm going to take it. I just wouldn't take it. Doctors are burning through the trust that we build up over hundreds of years by getting in bed with these economic entities. And statins are a good example. The evidence behind the cholesterol theory of heart disease is slender to none. And these drugs are only have only been proven to work or be appropriate. And these are small statistical improvements. If you have this exceedingly high cholesterol, or if you've already had a heart attack, all the other instances are unproven and the statins are moderately toxic and they kill a few people occasionally. So it's not a good thing. It's hundreds of billions of dollars spent over the decades that these things have been around. And the first one was one of the most profitable drugs in history because they sold this whole bill of goods to us. You should understand that the pharmaceutical companies are, if as measured by their federal settlements with federal prosecutors for criminal allegations, they are the most criminal industry in history. Just take that in for a second. Billions of dollars of criminal settlements every year. And some of the companies leading the charge towards these current therapies or vaccines, the quote vaccines, are on this list of companies that have settled criminal allegations for billions. And yet we don't hear about it. It's when we never hear about it so that the patient is totally unaware and that's not good. 
we're facing a wall of propaganda. And the just to give you an idea, the medical industry is bigger than the federal government, or at least the same size as the federal government. And the lobbyists for the medical industry are the biggest lobby in Congress. They've essentially bought and sold the Senate and the, the House. And I mean, they're they're bigger than any two other industries, such as oil and natural gas and banking. I mean, they're those are huge things. And basically, the what's happened to the FDA is a regulatory takeover. And so we face a wall of propaganda. And it's not just that they bought the legislature. They, I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but the internet has been sort of taken apart by these interests and their their material and the the media is cooperating with them, whether it's due to politics or whether it's due to just pure money. So, I mean, the size of these, these companies are, I mean, they're just, they're incredibly large and their revenues are huge. And we shower them with the money that they use to bribe us back and further their agendas. On a side note, you know, Google and Apple have market caps that are the same size as the federal government's revenues every year. In other words, it's uh, four trillion, and Google and Apple, their value of their stock total value is, uh, you know, it's over two trillion each. So, I mean, it's we're we're in an era when the the government and the rules have uh, changed, and he with the gold makes the rules. That's the goal. That's the new golden rule. Well, that's been the golden rule. You know, the one with the money makes the rules. That's, you think that's always live, been, but it's gotten worse. <laughs> you'd like to think we live under a rule of law and we have a constitution and so on, but it's getting trampled on now. It is getting trampled on. And everywhere you go, you can see that big pharma and medicine is just getting bigger and bigger. I was recently in Nashville for the very first time. And when I was taking one of the tours, they were pointing out that medicine is the biggest industry now in Nashville, overtook everything else. And everywhere you look, there's these big buildings, office buildings with doctors and hospitals, and it's huge. And I'm noticing the same thing in my local area. My local hospital used to be this tiny little hospital. And now it's just, they keep adding on and adding on and adding on. Everything keeps getting bigger and bigger. Where's all that money coming from? Well, here's where it comes from. The hospitals are 30 to 40% of our medical expenditure. And so they are phenomenally profitable, even though 70% of them are nominally nonprofit. But the only thing that this means is they have to spend that money by the end of the year or by what other accounting period is. And they do it by buying up other entities. The profits on these drug companies are at least 25%. Some of them are up to 50%. And that is completely at odds there at one point the top 10 pharmaceutical companies had more revenues more net income than the rest of the fortune 500 companies just bear in mind that i mean it's it's crazy so you know we've rained the money out of the sky on these people and they've the entrepreneurs stepped in and then the crooks stepped in and that's what we have now this is the end of part one. Part two will be live on Monday, November the 1st. For more information on Robert, you can go to his website at robertyohoauthor.com. And Yoho is Y-O-H-O. Thank you for listening today. And I look forward to having you join Robert and I next week for part two of my interview with Robert. You won't want to miss the rest of the conversation. Until then, be bold, not old. 
We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Kick-Ass Boomers. For more information on today's guest, along with the show notes and other inspiring resources, buzz on over to kickassboomers.com. And don't forget to join our Kick-Ass community on Facebook or LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Be bold, not old.